Queer Musicology podcast from the LGBTQ Plus Music Study Group. I'm George Haggett. This is episode two. This time we're speaking with Anthony R. Green, who's a composer, performer, and social justice artist, whose work comments on such issues as immigration, civil rights, and the historical links between slavery and current racial injustice in the US. He's also a co-founder of Castle of Our Skins, an organization that celebrates black artistry through music. So first of all, Anthony, thank you so much for joining me. And I think I'll start by saying we kind of had a plan for this episode, but it went a bit awry. So uh, we were going to play a song of yours that was premiered this November, but that premiere never happened. So could you tell us a little bit about the song and what led you to compose it? Yeah, definitely. So this year, as many of you may know, is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. And on Facebook... There was a post about how many composers of color were composing pieces in remembrance and in honor of this event that happened 50 years ago. And when I started to think about it, I thought, okay, I know that I've been slated to compose one piece. And I started looking around for other composers of color composing pieces based on this event, I think it's important to look for composers of color writing music about this event for two reasons. One, at least in the States, it's quite taboo to be a person of color and queer. And it's been taboo for a really long time. And there have been some wonderful, wonderful initiatives and projects to recognize people of color who are queer and bring them into the fold. But as some of you may know, there is this practice of on the DL, which really means people of color hooking up with each other, finding love, but keeping it very, very secret. And there's a certain set of social rules to follow when you're pursuing other people in this manner. Recently, the NAACP has acknowledged people of color who are queer and has sent out encouraging messages to celebrate these people and this type of love amongst people of color. But still, when you're black in the United States and you grow up in a black church, quite often you hear from the pulpit, if you're gay, you're going to hell and all of this anti-queer rhetoric. Especially that was my experience growing up. And luckily for me, I never really let it phase me especially because I had a wonderful mentor who knew that, I, uh, that I'm gay growing up, um, and that mentor was part of the church. So he really helped me be okay with myself and be as open as I could at that time. So combining all of this with the knowledge that people like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Ray Rivera and uh, Miss Major Griffin Gracie and other trans women of color were so important in the Stonewall Uprising, it's only natural to look for people of color who are celebrating these figures through music. 
So this question on Facebook was quite apropos, and I was very keen to research this. Unfortunately, I only found myself, <laughs> which is quite sad. So I started to look at other institutions who were making dedications to the Stonewall Uprising, and event after event after event had mostly male composers, mostly cis male composers, mostly straight composers, and practically no composers of color. And I knew that I was to be a part of an event from the Playground Ensemble in Denver, Colorado. They asked me to compose a piece specifically celebrating Marsha P. Johnson. And in doing so, I commissioned my good friend, Elizabeth A. Baker, who is a new Renaissance artist, wonderful, wonderful musician, composer, toy pianist, regular pianist, guitarist, sound producer. She does so, so much. She's also an incredible writer. And because of her multiple identities as an artist, she says, I am a new Renaissance artist. And I think this is a perfect way to identify in this crazy world. And with her text and my music, we fulfilled this wonderful brief of composing a piece in honor of the Stonewall Riots. And I had responded to this Facebook post saying, yes, I'm, I'm doing this. And the person who created this post then linked me to the London Song Festival, who then asked me to compose a piece for their festival. Unfortunately, things went sour. I provided the score in a very timely manner, but I think the musicians didn't seriously contemplate my score until it was too late. And I received an email saying that the text was a little bit accusatory and the performers were uncomfortable taking on gender fluid roles, especially with the fact that there would be gender fluid people in the audience. The person who sent me the email did mention that if they had addressed this earlier, then there would have been enough time to make changes. But the mere fact is... It was two weeks before the slated performance when I got this email and I sent them the score more than two months before the performance. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too hung up on the specifics of this case, but I do think it touches on a lot of really important issues that we can definitely discuss. So I've spoken to Nigel Foster at the London Song Festival too, and it seems to me that he and the singers most of all felt uncomfortable with portraying trans women when they themselves are cis and having looked at it now it is kind of inherent to the piece it is we can because they did so i don't know it seems like there is kind of a question of appropriation going on here and it kind of made me think of cases like eddie redmayne playing lily elba in the danish girl so i guess another way of putting this question is wouldn't you rather the song was sung by trans people if that isn't too blunt a question no no yeah. it's not a blunt question at all and obviously yes i would prefer either non-binary gender fluid or trans singers singing this song i also believe that for instance there's an opera called as one and i don't think any trans singer has played those roles to my knowledge at least I know that there have been multiple productions where cisgendered people have played this role. And I would ask any transgender, especially a transgender artist or musician, whether or not they want those productions to be rescinded just because 
cis people played those roles. I also had support in the production of this piece from other non-binary and trans musicians uh, who found out about this incident and were quite perplexed. They requested the score as well. Some of them said that maybe light changes of the text would have been preferable, but honestly, they were really confused as to why an organization would have pulled this piece and why the singers would have been uncomfortable playing these characters. There are so many things that would be awesome to have complete 100% blackness of. I went to a wonderful movie yesterday, The Last Black Man of San Francisco, and I'm looking at this movie and I'm just thinking, this is perfect. This is perfection. I can't alter this. I'm crying. I'm laughing. I'm celebrating. Turns out the director is white. And I'm just... <laughs> I didn't get livid. I just thought, oh, well, I'm glad that this movie exists. I would have preferred if the director were black. And to his credit, he worked very closely with the main actor in creating this movie and creating the concept and the script and the story. Most of the actors, of course, are black. And the message is super, super powerful. And this director is 29 years old. You know, more power to this guy. I really support everything that he's doing. I still wish he were black, though. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's just, it's such a small thing, honestly. And I'm, I'm saying it. Yeah, I wish he were black. But the mere fact that he's not black isn't, doesn't mean that I'm not going to support this movie and I'm not going to support his endeavors because I think he's the type of ally that a person like me needs and the black community needs. And I hope the trans community would view my work in the same way. I'm not trans, but I want to make especially more of my gay friends realize that they need to be stronger allies than they are. The thing is, while I am evoking trans people in these roles for the singers in the song, I also strongly believe that we can, because they did, is more of a general we. I'm gay. I'm not gender fluid at all. But I know that my being able to do this podcast is directly related to the work that Marsha Johnson did and Sylvia Ray Rivera did and all of these other trans people did. In my song, I also mention how so many cis, gay, white males in the United States tried to silence Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Ray Rivera, and all of these other trans women. It's strange when I think about that line being called accusatory when it's just the truth. This actually happened. So I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm, I'm just bringing up an event that happened. For this concert, the theme was Outsiders. And when I look back on my life, I am black and gay which at the time put me smack dab into an outsider position. I am black and I'm a composer of classical music. Puts me smack dab into the position of an outsider. I'm black, gay, I'm a composer, and I'm an expatriate living in the Netherlands. Smack dab into outsider position. 
But I just was happy to had the opportunity to belong to a concert with the theme Outsiders, especially knowing that I would be the only Black queer composer represented on this concert, talking about trans women of color for the most part and other trans heroes throughout history. But I think there's a plus side to this. I look back on this situation and I think perhaps this was just not the right fit for this piece. Ever since I've made this situation known, I have gotten contacted by quite a number of people who are interested in performing this piece. So I want to say hopefully within the next two years, I'll have at least three or four performances of this by musicians who actually want to perform it, who believe in the message that is in this piece and who agree with the injustice in history that needs to be acknowledged and corrected. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because musical performance comes with all these material conditions, right? Like if you had written a short story, we wouldn't be having this conversation now, but because it's a performance genre, it's you know inherently collaborative. In, in order to have something played, you need to hire people to actually play it. So it's kind of made me think actually of this wonderful article you wrote last year about what the optics of new music tell composers of colour, where you quote Helga Davis's keynote from the American New Music Gathering, and she kind of says, don't expect people to come to your thing if you don't go to their thing, and don't expect people to play your thing if you don't play their thing. I think the key point of Helga Davis's speech was when she asked everybody to look around and observe the makeup of the audience. And she said something to the effect of, what you see in this audience is what you want your audiences to be. And what can you do to change that? When she asked this question, look around, observe the makeup of this audience, see how many black people are there, how many queer people are there. If there aren't that many, but you want there to be more, then you as a community, as a new music community, need to do more to bring these people into the concert hall as audience members, as composers, as performers, as musicians, whatever. It's your responsibility to bring these people in. Um, as a composer, most of my music is played by white people. I've even had really awkward circumstances where Black people have talked rather negatively about my music and about my practice. So I can't rely on solely on Black people to, to have a, a career, to be successful in this world. And I don't want to. And I also don't think that trans people should solely rely on trans artists performing their stuff or presenting messages. And I understand that there's probably a preferred method of doing this, but I have an opera, I've written an opera about a trans woman, and many trans people have supported this opera in ways that I never thought they would have. Not every trans person has supported this opera. I've gotten quite negative, quite bold feedback from this, but... I know that I want to be more of an ally because I see so, so many gay men not being an ally to trans people. And I recognize that in myself. And that was really the sole reason why I composed that opera in the first place. Yeah, I mean, 
this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about We Can Because They Did in this interview, uh, because I don't want this podcast to shy away from controversy. And I'm just thinking now, in many ways, it's not the same circumstance as this example I quoted of Eddie Redmayne playing Lily Elba, because, I mean, you're still a young composer and you're kind of putting yourself out there, whereas that was a massive blockbuster and could have been the making of a trans actor's career. On that note, could you tell us a little bit more about Alex in Transition? Yeah, definitely. Alex in Transition is about a fictional trans woman who I created after doing about two and a half years of soul-searching, research, watching movies and television shows and documentaries and reading books and articles and talking with trans women. And I know that I wanted to correct my own prejudices against the trans community and I thought the best way for me to do this was to take on a massive, massive project like an opera. And I had always wanted to write an opera. I started quite a number of operas that I never finished for really, really good reasons. And so when I started to create Alex and think about her journey, her transition, her desire to find her truth and her desire to achieve authentic living... I noticed quite a bit of parallels between my envisioning of her journey versus my own personal journey. And I think those similarities are most brought out in Transition 3 or Act 3 of this opera, which is basically a giant monologue of Alex at the time presenting as a man talking about why she must transition. interesting about this project though is yes i think talking about trans issues will always be relevant but it's pleasing to me to know how much more visible trans people have become since i started composing this opera and so as time goes by i almost question the need 
for me to complete this project, whether it'll be a significant project for my fans or for the world of opera, or if it's just a project that would be significant for me to finish. I mean, that visibility's come at a price, right? Like, I came out mm, a few months before the tipping point, really, and I do really think that that was a thing. I mean, yes, we're so much more represented now, and I think for trans children, perhaps in particular, transitioning is actually something that they can... Well, an option that's available to them, and gender variance is something that's so much more processable and so much more public now. But at the same time, violence is on the rise. I mean, the media narratives in the UK in particular are, are just so much harsher than they used to be. Yeah, definitely. It's not like the current president of the United States is making anything better for trans people. Mm. All of these bathroom bills and writing gender as male and female and that's it into legislation and other horrible, horrible initiatives. As Laverne Cox justly says, these are initiatives that aren't about bathrooms, that aren't about gender. It's about erasing trans people. It's about taking away their visibility. Harvey Milk, when he took office in California, he wanted every gay person to come out. The thing with visibility is that it's difficult. It's really, really difficult. But on the other hand, it's super easy, right? It's easy just to say, this is me, this is who I am, take me or leave me. It's easy to do that. What's difficult is facing the repercussions, facing people not wanting to be your friend anymore, finding excuses to not hang out with you, not call you and not see you again. It's also very difficult to be the victim of homophobic and transphobic legislation, especially in other countries around the world where being queer, being an ounce of queer can mean death. Yeah, these types of dichotomies I ponder quite often. So we touched on race earlier when we talked about your article about optics, but you've also been doing all this great work with Castle of Our Skins, so could you tell us what you've been up to with them? So Castle of Our Skins is a Boston-based concert and education organization, and Castle of Our Skins is dedicated to celebrating Black artistry through music. Castle of Our Skins has put on educational workshops, community concerts, lectures, talks, college residencies, research projects, and massive interactive concert productions highlighting the music of Black composers throughout history and geography. We've programmed Black composers from the United States, from Canada, from the Caribbean, here from England, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, and we are focused on finding more of this music, celebrating these composers and their lives, sharing our research with as many people as we possibly can, and supporting Black artists in other genres as well. So we've collaborated with fashion designers, with visual artists, spoken word artists, dancers, historians, poets. We even have relationships with Black-owned businesses, local Black-owned businesses, who have come to some of our events and sold their products. We also have relationships with Black-owned catering companies, so we try to have really, really amazing receptions at some of our events, which has worked out quite well to the delight of 
ourselves and our audiences. And because we're basically the only people doing what we do in Boston, we've been asked to do quite a number of collaborations. So we've worked with the Handel and Haydn Society, Boston Lyric Opera, the Museum of African American History, Boston Children's Chorus, and all sorts of local organizations, as well as organizations outside of Boston, especially when we do residencies. So we've done residencies at Keene State College, Gettysburg College, and Brandeis University. And we're about to do a residency at Longy School of Music in Cambridge, and also do a concert at the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C., which we're really excited about. So as someone who's doing all this grassroots work and really getting Black composers' work out there, what would be your message to white musicians, white performers? The answer is really simple. Play our stuff. (laughs) And... You know, my article, what the optics say to black composers, that's basically what I'm getting at. Don't necessarily make such a fuss out of it. You don't have to say, oh, it's Black History Month, so we're doing this concert of all black composers. No, Black History Month is just one month of the year. You can program this music anytime and we'd be really, really happy, (laughs) right? You can program music from queer composers anytime. The people who are familiar with queer composers, with trans composers, they will know that you as an organization are supporting this music. It's strange to me, I see quite a number of young organizations, young ensembles, young duos, young trios, young soloists who program lots of music and have quite a number of concerts. And many of these people are the people who are on Twitter, are on Facebook, are on social media, go to New Music Gathering and cheer whenever they hear something about equity and programming. Um, But still, you look at their rosters and maybe one Black composer, maybe two, sometimes zero. (laughs) And my article basically just says, play our music. If you need help finding pieces to play, ask me. I'm an open book. If you don't want to ask me, ask many of the other people. Ask my partner, Ashley Gordon from Castle Our Skins. Go to our website and see the composers that we've programmed. I have a fan page if you don't want to engage with me directly. My Facebook fan page constantly is showcasing music from Black composers. So you can go to my fan page scroll down and just see all of the posts where I say, here's a piece by Winton Kelly Stoneguess. Here's a piece by Jesse Cox. Here's a piece by Jessica Mays. Here's one by Sakari Dixon. Here's one by Brittany Green. Here's one by Elizabeth Baker. I mean, I'm constantly, constantly featuring music from Black composers. And I try to feature music from young Black composers as well. Ahmed Alabaka, Daniel Kidane, Hannah Kendall, Yaz Lancaster, just wonderful, wonderful composers who are successful but could use more performances (laughs) because we can all use more performances. So yeah, I guess it's a little bit of a longer answer, but the crux of it is program the music. So on that note, I think it's about time we played some more of your music. So could you just tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear for the rest of the episode? Outside of my practice of activism and art and music, I still compose pieces with no political agenda. And one of my latest projects that I'm super proud of is a group of pieces called Kaleidoscope. And the idea behind these pieces is that each instrument has a very limited 
color palette of extended techniques and musical material. And in the way that a kaleidoscope has one object chamber that has a fixed amount of material, and the viewer must twist and rotate this object chamber to create different shapes and patterns, my kaleidoscope pieces have a very limited amount of material in the instruments, but the way that the material interacts with each other across the instruments creates different colors and textures and patterns throughout. So far, I have five of these pieces, and they've all been performed, which has been such a great project for me and such a wonderful journey for me to hear these pieces unfold and to listen to all of them together and notice their similarities and differences. And I am slated to compose a sixth kaleidoscope for a wonderful duo named Box Not Found, based in Boston.
That was the Desdemona String Trio playing Kaleidoscope 2. The other two clips you've heard were from Transition 3, from Alex in Transition. The baritone was Joab Weiss, the mezzo was Iris Brill. It was conducted by Hans Schellewis, and the ensemble included Gilly Reno on clarinet, Ileana Lovenberg on viola, Sholamit Lorraine on cello, and Itamar Ronan on piano. Our inbox is always open to potential contributors. For more information, please visit our brand new website, lgbtqmusicstudygroup.com That's lgbtqmusicstudygroup.com Please leave us a comment however you're listening and tell us what you thought of this episode. Subscribe to Keep in the Loop, like LGBTQ Plus Music Study Group on Facebook and follow at LGBTQMusicSG on Twitter. Bent Notes is produced by the LGBTQ Plus Music Study Group. We're supported by the British Forum for Ethnomusicology, the Royal Musical Association, the Society for Musical Analysis and the Society for Musicology in Ireland.